This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode, but more excited for this week. Um, We've started off strong. We've got some of the best experts in Australia talking about some really interesting topics, uh, all brought to you in conjunction with the ASX. Um, the ASX Investor Day has happened across Australia. Unfortunately, COVID shut down a couple of the cities, but yep. um, a great opportunity to hear uh, from some of the best in the business and learn a lot about investing. If you missed it, um, we're bringing you some of the best sessions this week. That's correct. Today, we are going to cover investing in emerging markets with uh, Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. So, Anthony is a cross-asset investment specialist at Fidelity International with 18 years experience in global markets. And we're going to cover in today's episode what Anthony covered at the conference, which was the context of the global economy, long-term trends in emerging markets, and the structural case for emerging markets for the long run, characteristics of emerging market stock markets, and also some of Anthony's preferred companies in emerging markets. So, plenty to cover there. Hope you're ready. Yeah, I did two sessions, so that's why there's so much stuff. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so much we're, knowledge, they couldn't all put it in one. Exactly, exactly. Well, they're going to jam it all in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Anthony, before we get to all of that, whenever we speak to an expert, we do like to hear the story of their first investment. We generally find there's a good story or a good lesson that comes out of it. So, to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, so I, w- I was thinking about this because um, obviously you-, you sent me the question before uh, before we sat down and I was going to take you on a long journey about how I invested in Amazon in 2002, but obviously that's not true. Um, and the reason, well, you could make up a story. Yeah, I was going to make it up. And, uh, you know, but uh, I mean, the reason is, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a global macro guy, right? So the stock specific stuff is of less, in- less interest to-, to where I've come from. Um, so I don't have a good story. I'm sorry to say. Um, it doesn't have to. It doesn't <laughs> have to be a specific stock. We've had people invest in sheep, 
goats. Yeah. Uh, what else have we had? Just the straight house. Yeah, housing. <laughs> the house. yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've had some weird ones on on the show. Over yeah, time. look, I mean, uh, I, I wish I could tell you a really interesting anecdote about how. I, you know, my parents gave me 50 cents or a dollar for my Dolomite account every every week for school, but they never did. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the, the investing experience that I've had, it's been very much of one where I, I suppose you've got your superannuation, um, you keep a close eye on that, um, but very vanilla, boring. Um, I can't say that I, I've picked a huge amount of winners or losers. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is we're just so heavily um, compliance these days. We can't really um, take single stock exposure. I've never really done anything particularly exotic. You know, any spare cash I had, to tell you the truth, I spent travelling. Nice. Probably enough. went behind a bar in um, <laughs> in Europe that's, somewhere. Hey, that's, that's the best investment. That's a good investment. <laughs> yeah, you know, the life experience, right? So, yeah, I left Australia when I was 25, came back uh, when I was, yeah, came back 13 years later with uh, a wife and three kids. So, you know, traveling was a really good experience for me. There you go. Also, super is some an answer that no one has said before, but that's probably most people's first investment. Yeah, without, exactly. Without fail, well, yeah. I mean, I, I started uh, on the checkout at Target when I was 14, nine months, the, the bare minimum, and you're getting super from then, right? So... I mean, you have to pay attention to that, particularly given if you are 14 and nine months and you're getting a little bit of super, it's going to be 10% from the 1st of July, uh, 12.5% in a couple of years' time. Just use the power of compounding on your side. You're not retiring for a long time. And think about, you know, uh, probably Australians don't pay enough attention to, to how powerful super can be for them over a long period of time. Mm, mm. So, Anthony, let's start at the top with a bit of context around what's going on in the global economy at the moment. And the conversation obviously has to start with the COVID response. Um, What are your thoughts on or what do we need to know about the government's fiscal response to this crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's been truly extraordinary the the last 12 months. And it's only when you look back in reflection, do you recognise that there have been we, what we've lived through is a period of history that we haven't seen really since the Spanish influenza after World War One. So it's something that we may see again, we may not see again, but for an economy to be put on ice and for all of us to go into lockdown and kids not going to schools, I think it's something that, that none of us had ever envisaged. I mean, it was sort of a, a tiny, tiny risk. And even January, February last year, I don't think many people would have thought that 12 months, 13 months, 14 months later, we would have had the experience that we've had. So, I mean, when it comes to both um, setting interest rates, which we call monetary policy from the Reserve Bank of Australia, when it comes to the government response, which we call fiscal policy in terms of uh, Josh Frydenberg, Scott Morrison, and uh, the coalition government here in Australia, the federal government, truly extraordinary what we've seen. Whether it be interest rates now, zero, you know, 0.1 of a percent, huge ramifications for, for your listener base, whether it be, you know, accumulation of government debt and uh, supporting Austra- the Australian economy through this extraordinary period, you know, that those bills will come due sometime and it's not going to be in the lifetime of the next three years when when the federal government uh, is, uh, you know, re-elected or not re-elected, you know, it's going to be down the line. We're talking generations. I mean, the next generation is called Generation Alpha. That's my kids, you know, they're, they're five <laughs> And I've got, I've got twins that are three years old. Generation Alpha, you know, they'll be paying these bills. So it's absolutely right that governments around the world, including our own, have stepped in to support Australians, particularly via JobKeeper and the labour market, support businesses 
through this tough time because it was a government-enforced recession because it was responding to a health epidemic pandemic. So, I mean, truly extraordinary. And we've seen really the goalposts shift a lot um, internationally and domestically. And uh, that has huge ramifications for how we invest and how we think about um, investing over the long long term. Mm. Now, one thing that uh, you, you touched on there was the debt load uh, that uh, governments around the world have sort of taken on to fund a lot of these programs. Uh, in your presentation, you talked about the difference in developed markets and emerging markets. Um, so, can you talk to that and how these, I guess, debt loads differ between these economies? Yeah. So, I mean, taking Australia, for example, we uh, have had a fetish with a balanced budget. There's one other nation in the world, developed market nation in the world, that has also had a similar um, bent in terms of fiscal policy, and that's Germany. So they had a policy of Project Black Zero, which meant a balanced budget. We also were fixated on this balanced budget. So when I came back to Australia in 2018, I was amazed that the economy was slowing and there was still this fixation around well, we've got to balance our books and, you know, we shouldn't be stimulating the economy, which just goes against everything that you sort of taught um, at uni or, or at high school even. So, I mean, our, we will often hold our, our hand up and go, we, our government has a AAA credit rating, which doesn't really mean much to tell you the truth. You know, what matters more is the, the price you're paying for the debt that's being issued, which is called a yield. Um, and yields are at all-time lows or they have just bounced off all-time lows internationally. And we'll say we've got a AAA credit rating, 50% debt to GDP. Um, but that has come at a cost where Australia's household debt to GDP is the second highest in the world. So we've just levered up another part of the economy. And you know what that financial asset is? Houses, right? So um, we, we've got the silver medal there and we're working really hard on getting the gold medal. <laughs> um, so Switzerland currently have that. But, um, you know, one legacy of this crisis will be higher debt, whether it be government, corporate or household debt. Um, now, that compares and contrasts with what you're seeing in the emerging world where uh, they're beginning their journeys of financial sophistication and financial development. So you don't necessarily have the same sort of credit and lending products that you would have available in a developed market like Australia or like America or like the UK, for example, but they're starting that journey. So what you've found is that in terms of whether it be government debt or um, you know, for the majority of emerging markets or whether it be household debt um, or corporate debt tends to be far lower than what you'll see in um, developed markets. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly leverage is one thing that we've seen increasing because guess what? Debt is cheap and uh, it's one way to fuel economic growth. Mm. So Anthony, we're in a bit of a commodity super cycle at the moment with uh, prices rising across the board and you know conversations around inflation are really picking up as well and we're seeing numbers in the US that uh, were surprising. What are you thinking and what are you watching at Fidelity in terms of both commodities and inflation? I mean, I love this, right? Nice. So I mean, uh, you know, I love this inflation debate, deflation debate, growth versus value, small cap versus large cap. For so long, it's been so boring, right? So <laughs> volatility is ultra low and, um, you know, not really much uh, in way of action in terms of, of equity markets grinding higher. But, I mean, uh, the inflation versus deflation debate is one that is close to bond investors' hearts. Um, and I spent a lot of my, my career in bond and fixed income and currency markets. Um, and, uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's unsurprising that we're seeing inflation move higher via commodity prices. Because if you think about where we were 
during the pandemic, we were, the whole world went into lockdown and the trade totally stopped. The oil price went negative. It's like we forget this. All this stuff was happening. People were paying to not take delivery of oil. Um, so, you know, twelve months later, obviously prices are higher, and you get those base effects feeding through into into inflation. But also, what you've seen is we're still living through this pandemic. So, one one commodity price close to Australia's heart is iron ore, and the iron ore price is high because China is relatively strong, the only economy that grew last year. And Brazil, another huge iron ore supplier, is offline because of COVID. So naturally, supply is contracted, demand has increased, prices increased. Eventually, what you tend to see in response to higher prices is supply respond, inevitably over responds, too much supply comes on stream and you see um, big declines in commodity prices. But I mean, the big thing for your listeners is, you know, we'll talk about inflation and we'll talk about why interest rates low because inflation is low but you you know your listeners they'll be going it's so expensive to live right now and the reason is you know if you think about what you spend your money in money on month in month out whether it's rent whether it's uh, utilities whether it's rates beers. whether it's beers <laughs> <laughs> um, whether it's uh, you know food the stuff that you have to spend money on month in, month out, that's materially outpricing the the official measure, which the RBA targets, CPI. The stuff that biases down the CPI, consumer price inflation, is stuff that we import overseas and buy on a discretionary basis. So I'm talking about a new car. How often do you buy a new car? How often do you buy a new mobile phone? How often do you buy a new computer? And it's not that these things are getting cheaper necessarily, but they're getting better. So think about your Nokia 6210 where you used to play Snake um, versus an iPhone today. It's not that the iPhone's 90% cheaper, but it's 90% better. So the statistician will adjust for that. It's called hedonically adjusting for quality improvements, and that's deflationary. So, I mean, the what you have to recognize is that inflation, it is not a cost of living index. It's just a measure of the price of goods and services in an economy. So, I mean, when I've been talking to to our clients, whether it be um, direct investors, whether it be financial advisors, whether it be superannuation funds, institutional clients, you know, pointing this out to them, that there is that disconnect between official inflation and the RBA saying we're cutting rates because inflation is low versus what people are actually paying via their cost of living. So, you know, to, to cut a long story short, for, for us at Fidelity, this commodity price increases is entirely appropriate. Um, the market's pricing in 2% inflation in Australia for the next five years. So it's not runaway inflation. It's at the, the lower end of the RBA's target band. Um, and with that in mind, I think that the inflationistas are getting a lot of headlines at the moment, but those long-term trends, secular trends, you know, that are firmly entrenched like technology, um, demographics, globalisation should continue to see um, a lid on inflation. But because we're in such extraordinary times, um, investors are definitely worried about it. Mm. So, Anthony, that's a little bit about the context of the global economy. Uh, now we want to move to emerging markets and what the opportunities look like there and how investors should think about it. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, Anthony, um, let's move to emerging markets. And emerging markets is sort of a, I guess, a general term um, that might, may mean different things to different people. So, um, let's start with a bit of a definition for our conversation today. When you're talking about emerging markets, how do you define uh, what an emerging market is? Yeah, and I, I can see why you know, it means different things to different people. So, um, the term emerging markets was first used in 1981 by an economist at one of the um, world economic agencies because it sounded better than third world countries or, low in, or um, developing countries. So uh, emerging markets, I mean, the International Monetary Fund, which is the, the world's body of um, uh, economists, will tell you that uh, there's 140 emerging nations. Whereas when you look at the investable universe of, say, what the index providers will, will tell you, so an MSCI, Emerging Markets Index, for example, they'll tell you there's 27 emerging market nations. So you go from 140, which is basically anyone that's not a developed market, according to the IMF, and they define that by looking at metrics like GDP per capita or net income per capita, um, the, the level of development within a nation in terms of infrastructure and the institutional framework around that, like the rule of law, versus MSCI, who are looking at the depth, liquidity and breadth of the respective markets that they're looking at, whether it be equity or fixed income markets. So when we talk about emerging markets today, it's not in that pure economist definition it's in the, the the market definition of what the index providers um, and what they incorporate within their index that's our investable universe um, so as i said there's 27 nations dependent upon the the level of sophistication of their financial markets depth breadth and um, the liquidity of those markets and just to really ground this for people listening what are some of the big names in that basket of 27 are we talking like china brazil russia yeah so uh Emerging markets um, is defined by, so 80% Asia, um, so the typical, I'm sure you've been there, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, China, of course, uh, Vietnam, for example, Singapore, then uh, Korea's even there, which oh, on wow. many metrics is a developed nation. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't uh, have thought of them as emerging. No. Yeah, yeah, South Korea. Um, and then you've got um, EMEA, which is Eastern Europe, the Middle East and Africa. So that's around 15% of uh, the index. And then 5% is Latin America. So the Brazils of the world, um, uh, yeah, the other South American nations, Mexico, big one, uh, of course, as well. Hmm. What are some of the key trends that you're seeing in emerging markets? Yeah, so I suppose much like the rest of the world, what we're, what we're seeing is this period where Secular trends, when I say secular, these long-term trends um, have really been accelerated by COVID, um, particularly 
say, digital adoption. Um, so there's some estimates that digital adoption, two years of uh, uh, acceptance of, of digital has been condensed into two months because of COVID. And, you know, in my own personal experience, never worked from home before, um, was sent out the door in March last year with a laptop in my hand and did over 300 meetings on Zoom last year with clients. Now the question is, will you ever work from home again? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, definitely, I mean, I think my working habits have changed, particularly with young kids and being able to help out a little bit more with the drop-offs and, and all the rest of it. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm fortunate to work in a role where I can have that flexibility. Um, but certainly, I mean, the, the ASX Roadshow has shown me that people still want that face-to-face -face human contact. You guys couldn't wait to get me in today. I said, can I just zoom in? He said, no, no way. way. No put, way. Put the cans on. And yeah, let, let's it. get to work. Um, so, I mean, you've got these long-term trends, which are reasonably uh, easy to predict, ironically. People will say the long-term is harder to forecast than the short-term, right? I mean... I can forecast that I'm going to leave this studio and, and head off to work. In, you know, that's short term. Where am I going to be in 10 years' time? That's hard to harder to forecast or, or um, speculate about. But there's these long-term trends, whether it be you know, superior demographics in emerging markets, whether it be that emerging markets are going to um, – growth is going to surpass developed markets over a long period of time, whether it be that the average individual that resides in emerging markets is likely to get wealthier – as those growth outcomes lead to higher standards of living, whether it be that consumer preferences um, in emerging markets are likely to adopt, say, Western habits like consuming proteins for the first time. So you have these long-term trends and what you often find is that the, the uh, values of companies around those long-term trends can often deviate depending upon investor behaviour. You can't look at investment markets without trying to understand human behaviour as well. Now, uh, of course, in terms of emerging markets, STEM graduates through the roof. Uh, patent applications on this sort of um, exponential trend versus the developed markets, which are flatlining. All the risk and development in terms of companies investing in research and, and development going forward is you know, predominantly in emerging markets as well. Where are developed market companies placing their bets for their own growth going forward? Huge consumer markets in Asia in particular. Um, so you've got these long-term secular trends that if you can tap into – so you guys, uh, you, you know ice hockey, right? You know Wayne Gretzky? Yeah, yeah. He's a, the highest scorer, you know, legend, right? And so how do you score so many goals in, in ice hockey or in hockey as they call it in Canada and North America? Uh, well, I, I skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been, right? So this is a similar story in, in investing in emerging markets. Look at where these secular themes, secular trends are going. Identify companies that can tap into those themes and get in at the ground floor. You know, skate to where the puck is going. Um, and that's how you can really identify the winners of tomorrow versus the winners of yesterday, for example. Mm. So just for uh, people who missed your presentation um, at the ASX Investor Day, probably kicking themselves right now. Um, but uh, well, That's you very kind. <laughs> Come on. What do you guys want? Yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned uh, eight trends in, in your slides so that emerging markets will drive gro global growth. They'll be resilient to capital outflows, technological innovators, younger and larger populations, rising wealth, less debt, 
growing consumer markets, attractive valuations. It's a pretty good recipe for success. What more do you want? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what, exactly. What, what we want is to hear what Anthony's favorite companies true, are in those true. markets. And don't worry, we are getting to that. <laughs> so there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of um, ingredients uh, f- in the recipe for success. There are a lot of, you know, sort of demographic and economic um, factors that point emerging markets in the right direction. Um the question then becomes like let's zoom in on the stock market and talk about how investors can participate in that growth and in that development. Yep. Um, so again, let's start general. Um, how do emerging market um, stock markets compare to more developed markets? And in particular, you mentioned valuations in your presentation. If you can sort of explain, I guess, a valuation gap if there is one. Yeah, so definitely uh, emerging markets trade at a discount to developed markets. Um, the reason is that generally there's more risk in emerging markets, whether it be geopolitical, economic, macro factors, uh, inflation, interest rates, um, for example, institutional risk. So it is an area of the world which is at the the riskier part of the investment um, spectrum, but you're rewarded via higher um, compensation for that risk, right? So there's no, there's no return without risk. All that exists today is return free risk. That's all that that's all that exists. So once upon a time we call risk free cash. So you could generate um you know you could you could meet your investment goals by compounding cash at 5% a year. Mm. Long gone. Those days are yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The boomers <laughs> took that, right? Damn the, you. the boomers <laughs> took that and they levered it into the housing market. So you got to think differently. You got to you got to make your savings and and invest make your savings work harder for you. Um it's not enough to try and just save cash month and month out now, um, particularly if central banks are more happy to accept higher inflation because of high debt. So what what you do in emerging markets is there's a higher, what we call risk premium. You're compensated over a long period of time with higher returns. Um, but of course, when you're investing in a riskier part of the world, you really have to do your bottom-up homework, your due diligence to avoid this a scenario of blow-ups within your portfolio. Nothing will hurt you more than your company going to zero, which is what happens with equities in particular. So, um, I mean, when you are looking at investing in emerging markets, there is um, a higher premium, a higher reward on offer. You can mitigate that, which is what we try and do at, at Fidelity, um, by being located in the region. You know, we've got 45 analysts there, uncovering and looking at the universe of, of companies that we can invest in across those various continents um, and emerging markets in general. The universe is about 13,000 companies. When you're looking at the various geographic regions, the um, the Asian market is very similar to the US market, dominated by tech, long duration, growth stocks. When you're looking at uh, Latin America, for example, the 1% allocation to tech. Uh, most of it is basic materials, financials, similar to if you think about EMEA, so Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, more along the lines of commodities. So at this, when you're looking at uh, emerging markets, it's very diverse, um, idiosyncratic, so you know, very unique, much like we wouldn't say the Australian market is the same as the British market and same as the European market. It's the same in emerging markets, so a lot of opportunities there, but a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, areas where you can make a misstep. So you have to come to this market with eyes wide open um, and, and find those managers or 
um, find those companies that can, can really do a job for your diversified portfolio of assets over a long period of time. Well, that, that leads nicely onto uh, a question that I often have wondered about emerging markets. And, you know, in Australia, there's really, and technology is breaking down a lot of barriers and making more stock markets accessible from Australia. But traditionally, and still in the most part today, uh, Australian investors have two choices when they want to participate in emerging markets. They can find an active manager um, who's got a focus on emerging markets, or they can invest in an emerging markets index, uh, like through an ETF or um, something. How do you think about that choice for investors? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously at Fidelity, we have an active ETF. So you can buy that on the ASX. You can own that next to your Afterpay shares, CBA <laughs> shares, the ticker is FEMX. So, I mean, that's one way to, to get access to, to emerging markets. As I said, there's around 13,000 companies in the index. We own between 35 to 50 in a diversified portfolio of assets. So, when your listeners are looking at, at buying a, a, or um, building a stock portfolio, modern portfolio theory suggests you can harness the benefits of diversification with as few as 12 stocks, well diversified, diversified across sector, country, um, region. Uh, you can do you can do a really good job there. Um, so you don't have to actually um, own a huge breadth of companies in order to harness the benefits of diversification. So that's what we do. You know, we take positions a long way away from the index. So typically our overlap with the MSCI Emerging Market Index is around 20%, um, you know, sometimes less, sometimes uh, only 10%. Because essentially what you'll find in an EM index is you're buying the good and the bad. And I've got no issues at all with passive investing, low fee investing, index investing. Makes a lot of sense for a market like the S&P 500, you know, um, makes a lot of sense in those sort of developed markets where there's a lot of transparency um, and you know very strong governance um, around companies and how they uh, disclose information on a quarterly basis. When you're looking at small cap investing, when you're looking at uh, emerging market investing, Asian investing, fixed income investing, you've really got to be active um, because as I said, this is a part of the world which is more opaque and allows an active investor a higher likelihood of outperformance over a long period of time. That's less so in the US S&P 500, where there's a lot of eyes looking at Google, and so price discovery is a lot easier. So um, for me, what you'll find is that when you look at, say, uh, EM in particular, being active can be really beneficial, um, particularly relative to the index, as the index is dominated by these slow-growing companies in regions that have really already emerged, like Korea, you know, huge behemoths that are really tapping into, say, um, what's going on in the developed world, as opposed to say more EM specific risk, which is why you, you're buying EM, you know, to harness some of those big secular themes that are ongoing. Mm, I mean, looking at the uh, MSCI Emerging Markets Index at the moment, it's what thirty-seven percent China, thirteen percent Taiwan, thirteen percent Korea, ten percent India. So you're really more than what a third, two thirds, or about two thirds of the exposure is coming from those four countries. So yeah. if you're excited by the opportunity in other parts of the emerging markets world, 
you're not getting a lot of returns driven by them. Yeah, and I imagine most of your listeners are active investors, right? They're they're not just you know having a look at the ASX 200. They're thinking where can I where can I pick those winners and and um, potentially those ten baggers over time. You know, something that we do similarly uh, across Fidelity. Mm. Yeah, mm. we've spoken to a, a fair few experts recently who had you know, uh, focusing on Indonesia, India, China, and it's becoming very clear to me anyway that an active approach is something that I think is more important than an index approach given I think, I think it's like the if opportunities that you miss if you go index. Yeah, yeah. It, just know what you're doing. Like know what you're getting if you're indexing. That yeah. You're going to be, it's going to be like the mega cap Chinese companies that yeah. are really driving the index and you're not going to be exposed to any of these new emerging technology companies and any of these... The hundred baggers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, to recap there, that's the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets Fund. It is available on the ASX. The ticket is FEMX if you would like to get involved in what Fidelity and Anthony is doing over there. So uh, before we jump into some of your favorite emerging companies, this is the part that we're really excited about. We'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So, Anthony, in your presentation, you shared six of Fidelity's favorite emerging market stocks. Um, let's go through them and, I guess, answer one, what they do, and uh, two, sort of why you like them, what's the investment thesis. So, let's start at the top, uh, one that I'm sure many of our listeners have heard, and that is the Alibaba Group. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, as I said, I mean, sorry, as you said, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Alibaba, the world's largest e-commerce platform, um, but far beyond that uh, in terms of, you know, one of the world's largest markets in China, you know, they've really integrated themselves into the daily life of um, the the average person in China as well, um, whether it be B2B or B2C or C2C, um, you know, truly a, 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 an overwhelming presence now in terms of um, what what the average Chinese uh, person does on a day-to-day basis. And what you've found in China, the e-payments um, market is 50 times the size of the US. So, I mean, I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago and everything is online. You know, you, you couldn't pay Remimbi if you tried for a coffee. Um, so Alibaba, truly an outstanding company, one of the largest in the index. Um, it probably makes sense to have some exposure there. Um, because they are a, 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 a dominant player. Obviously, more recently, uh, there's been some regulatory risk around that. Um, we actually foresaw some of that occurring. Um, you've seen a 30% um, price correction. Um, so again, I mean, when we're investing in these companies, we're looking on a three to five year time horizon in terms of uh, sort of uh, generating uh, gains for, for our holdings. Um, but if you're a long-term investor, it makes a lot of sense to have a look at Alibaba. Yeah, that, um, I guess, regulatory risk or political risk is a really interesting one when it comes to emerging markets. You, you said you foresaw some of that with um, Alibaba. Like, how do you factor that into your analysis? And I guess a lot of it can be arbitrary in some ways. Like, a leader can decide something and things change. That yeah. It's hard to forecast. How do you factor that risk in? Well, it's the same everywhere, right? I mean, you sometimes forget in the US... Congress was stormed this year, right? Um, so, I mean, when I say we foresaw um, regulatory risk around Alibaba, it's in that it's not a pure tech play, as I said, because they've, they're more of a conglomerate now, um, particularly if you think about um, some of the payment services and financial services that they offer. So it makes sense. I mean, financial services is one of the most heavily regulated industries globally. 
um, and particularly banks and, and financial companies too. So it makes sense that, um, you know, you've got regulatory risk around the, the big tech names in the US as well. You've got um, taxation risk around that too. So ultimately, whether you decide to pull the trigger or not on allocating capital to a company, once you've done all your due diligence, once you've done all your fundamental analysis, once you've really kicked the tires, it comes down to valuation. And how do you expect the share price to perform over your time horizon? And if it ticks those boxes in terms of valuation, sentiment, fundamentals, you know, allocate. Um, so that that's um, one of the reasons why. I mean, we've been traditionally, whether it be in our EM fund, the Emerging Markets Fund or our Asia Fund, underweight tech. Um, but because we've seen some of that correction, we've um, started to have a bit of a nibble now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice one. Well, the, the next one is also a Chinese company, uh, one that I'd never heard of before, and that's Li Ning. Oh, never <laughs> heard of it. <laughs> never heard of it. That's why you're here. You call yourself, have you, have call you yourselves no. millennials. No. <laughs> call yourselves millennials. Well, I feel like I'll know all about it after <laughs> this. <laughs> one of our favorite companies, wow. um, one of the, the best performing companies in our fund. Um, so, Li Ning, what, well, where do I start? 1984, Olympic Games. Los Angeles, Li Ning, China's first Olympic gold medalist. Wow. Yep. Won three golds, two silver and a bronze. Uh, so he's known as the Prince of Gymnastics in China. Household name. I travel around Australia and no one's heard of him. Yeah, yeah. So I, I forgive Aussies for that. Um, so I move on to 2008. You watch the Beijing uh, opening ceremony at the Olympics? From, guess, I guess can't. Don't know if I did. You remember all the drummers? <laughs> oh, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess who lit the Olympic cauldron? Uh, Leaning. Leaning. <laughs> so basically, uh, Leaning, who uh, is the chairman, or he was um, the CEO, he's now the chairman, um, he started this company um, when he retired from gymnastics. It's like, what am I going to do? Um, and so he started this company, which was a sportswear and equipment manufacturing company. And his dream was that one day the Chinese Olympic team would wear a leaning branded uh, tracksuit into the opening ceremony. So he started this company after retiring from gymnastics, of course, just as China was opening up to the rest of the world. Um, and this has been a real success story for, for our fund in particular, um, in that uh, one of our Hong Kong-based analysts uh, identified that b before the, the Olympics in 2008, they'd just been um, really... Uh, manufacturing a lot of really cheap type items um, that was sort of in the, the bargain basement bin. And there was this turnaround story where they were trying to um, shed themselves of that reputation of, you know, being um, a, a lower cost, lower quality type producer of sportswear items um, and manufacturing items to one where they were more high end. So, you know, one, one strategy that they did was they opened up another brand called China Li Ning. And China Li Ning was there to sort of um, really compete with the Adidas's of the world, Reeboks, Nikes of the world. Um, they participated for the first time in the Paris um, fashion show. They sponsored uh, Shaquille O'Neal. So Shaquille O'Neal, Dwayne Wade um, uh, had Li Ning. So they were all in NBA athletes. Um, so, I mean, a huge presence domestically in China. And what you've also seen over the last couple of years is trade tensions between the US and China. So um, increasingly Chinese consumers becoming more nationalistic and buying Chinese designed and manufactured items for, 
for um, the Chinese millennial generation in particular. So when China was opening up to the rest of the world, um, older generations saw wearing a pair of Nikes as particularly aspirational, whereas millennials and, and Gen Z coming through China today, they don't care. They're more than happy to own a pair of leanings. So um, leaning, you know, fantastic success story. I presented for the ASX in 2019. It was my top pick. Since then, it's up 397%, wow. which I've wow. been reminding everyone about. <laughs> uh, hopefully, they don't, no one asked me about anything else. So there's your, there's your stock story um, from earlier on. But, um, you know, a real success story there uh, and, and hopefully one that can continue. But the fact that I can go around Australia and say, who's leaning? and no one's heard of him, and he's a household name in China, probably tells you the opportunities that you're missing by just not being Im- embedded in that region. And guess what? It's not in the index. It is now because of how um, the share price has performed, 0.1% of the index. Yes. There you go. Fascinating. Well, if we hadn't heard of Li Ning, uh, we've both definitely heard of this next company, um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Yeah. So, well, if you've both heard about it, I'm sure your listeners have as well. So, I won't, I won't delve on it for too long. I think some of our, not all of our listeners yeah? will have. So all right. Give, okay. Yeah. Give it, give it a brief explanation. Yeah, then, sure. Then why you like sure. it. Sure. So, um, tech manufacturing company, um, if your listeners are going for a run, got their iPhone on, the, the semiconductors and the chip has probably come from Taiwan Semiconductor on their iPhone or on their Samsung phone. You, know, you guys have a couple of Macs in front of me. Yeah, the, the chip in it's come from Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, really best in class, you know, speculation that semiconductors are, everything's a new oil, but some, some are saying semiconductors are the new oil. It's a commodity, huge shortage at the moment. Um, their main rivals in terms of supply are Samsung and IBM. IBM, um, during the pandemic last year, threw their hands up, said we can't fulfill our clients' orders, actually became a client of Taiwan Semiconductor. So their main, one of their main rivals became their client. You know, truly extraordinary. Um, they, they updated us um, a few months ago that in R&D, they have 100 billion US dollars penciled in on R&D in the next three years. We've never seen a company invest that much before. Um, far and away the dominant player in terms of you know tech and, and leading the charge on, on semiconductors and the, the share price has responded accordingly uh, of course so huge company um, yeah again it's the largest company in the M index so if, if people haven't heard of it you know it's it's ingrained in our everyday lives and it's only going to accelerate as um, we see continued tech adoption and automation of our lives so you know one example I use is you can you know you roll out of bed and you can order a coffee on your phone now you know from your kitchen and the coffee machine will make your cappuccino for you or your flat white um, so you can get up to your kitchen have your flat white but there's a semiconductor in the coffee machine mm. right yeah. just does that with Uber Eats <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating uh, industry the semiconductor we did a bit of a deep dive recently on yep. on the shortage that's going on and I mean there are car manufacturers who are leaving yes. out like nav systems um, yeah. you know what would be now a default sort of function in a car they just can't put in because yes. they don't have a semiconductor and we're talking like even uh, connected toothbrushes are now uh, yeah, failing. Yeah. Oh, what is a connected toothbrush? Like everything is just connected these yeah. days. It's well, crazy. we just watch um, the Wiggles when we're brushing our teeth. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. You mean we as in everyone uh, of fidelity? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just my wife and I. Yeah. <laughs> so the next one on the list is TTI or Tektronic Industries. 
You heard of this company? No. Nope. Haven't, no. Hong Kong domiciled? No. Uh, have you heard of Hoover? The vacuum? No. Yeah. 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 You heard of Ryobi? Yes. Yeah. Tektronik owned them. Oh, they design, design, manufacture, um, and a suite of other brands as well. So, um, I mean, obviously in lockdown, I've been uh, heading up to Bunnings, which is, you know, when you have kids, it's your one respite. Um, you can get up there <laughs> and just, it's like uh, Disneyland for middle-aged dads. So, um, yeah, in, in lockdown, I've gone out and bought some Bunnings hedge trimmers and stuff like that, you know, Tektronic Industries, um, design, manufacture, and produce um, Ryobi products and, and, and other products as well. So, you know, here's a company which, again, in terms of that sort of COVID trade, we all went out, we couldn't travel anymore. So we started buying stuff to improve houses or do a bit of gardening or the rest of it. Um, here's, a, here's a company that benefits from that, but trades at a discount because of where it's domiciled in Hong Kong. But you're really getting a lot of, um, say, DM growth risk, but also um, EM EM, as we increasingly see um, you know, consumers and preferences in, in emerging markets, the huge markets that they are, um, adopt developed market consumer um, preferences as well. That's fascinating. I didn't know that either of those brands were owned by that, that company. Yeah. Well, I've never heard of that company, so obviously I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, yep. There you go. Well, another company that I'll admit I haven't heard of is African Rainbow Minerals. Yep, yep. Tell us um, all about it. Yeah, of course. So you've heard of BHP? Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't tell me that the yeah. African Rainbow owns yeah. BHP. I know that's not true. <laughs> so, no, no. But um, I mean, the reason I bring up BHP is you can buy BHP today, obviously benefiting from the commodity price increase as well, um, the, the uplift in, in commodity prices. Buy BHP on a, a PE of 30 times, so price to earnings ratio. So after 30 years, you'll get your, your share price back. You can buy Africa Rainbow Minerals, a similar type of company to, to BHP, not as large, of course, but um, geared in, you know, they, they mine the usual type of commodities, gold, lithium, you know, going into EV batteries, uh, platinum, you know, these are uh, commodities that are used in industrial use. You can buy Africa Rainbow Minerals domiciled in South Africa on a P of six times. Wow. Wow. So it's just too, it's just too cheap to ignore. That's a pure value type trade, right? This sort of cyclical economic growth returning, commodity prices higher, PE is six times, really cheap, um, but geared into many of those themes that say a BHP is, is geared into or Rio Tinto is geared into as well. So you're buying it on a lot cheaper valuation, which is generally the case in EM. Um, and, and then the opportunity to, to generate those long-term growth outcomes uh, are far higher than say a BHP where it's probably going to be slow and steady returns for, for the next five years. Mm. This might be a dumb question, but why doesn't a bigger mining company buy that at a six times valuation and then, you know, if BHP is getting a 30 times earnings multiple, just add their earnings and get a valuation bump out of that? Yeah, well, they could. They could, right? Um, so I guess a lot of it comes down to, um, as I've been speaking about earlier, you know, the institutional framework around it and whether they're willing to go into South Africa, take on that country risk, take on, and particularly now, I guess it's a pretty risky proposition because we are still living through the pandemic. We'll get through it. You know, it'll be you know much like you know I was I was in Dublin during the GFC, uh, so I was I was working on a bond and currency desk there in two thousand and eight. We were worried about cash coming out of ATM machines, and looking back, you're like, well, you know, and now Ireland's booming, absolutely yeah. booming, and you know whether it's in the Euro debt crisis and uh, you know Greece had to have a fifty percent haircut on its debt, and you're like, oh, 
you, you wouldn't go to Greece because you couldn't get out. It was concerns about planes stop flying and they stop flying in pharmaceuticals and things like that into Greece. So, you know, the noise is there today, um, but we will get through it. You know, you have to, I suppose, um, have faith in the ability of humans and the human race to continue to adapt and evolve um, and get through it. So, uh, again, I think, you know, I think you make a really interesting point. Maybe you could, I mean, we had BHP in the offices yesterday, uh, the CEO <laughs> and the CFO, so we should have had you in. Yeah. Look, I'm uh, sure whatever uh, questions I'm asking, someone a lot smarter in the mining industry has asked those questions. I'm going to well. go back to Justin, uh, Justin, who's our um, minings analyst, when I, get, when I go back to the office and I'm going to pose it to him. Okay, okay. And I, I'll email you the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, if a mining company does buy them now, their CEO is obviously listening yes. so they have to come on the show it wouldn't surprise me yeah <laughs> so anthony to close out uh the six stocks and this is one that mary manning from elliston capital actually said was the best company she's ever seen yeah uh and that is hdfc bank yeah uh, i mean we love it as well so it's across a number of our portfolios at fidelity um so uh mary um we're in good company there um, so uh yeah well i mean i guess first you have to start off with the scenario in India at the moment, um, which is devastating. Um, and first and foremost, a humanitarian crisis. So, you know, with that in mind, um, we have, um, you know, a lot, I have a lot of colleagues in Mumbai um, and India. We have one of the largest research teams of any international investment manager in India. So, you know, it's absolutely devastating what's going on. But, you know, putting that all into context, you know, HDFC is a, a, an outstanding bank, um, you know, really best in class in India. And, and you know, I, I talk to, to clients and I just say, you know, I've got 49 million customers, 49 million customers, you know, twice the population of Australia, sort of, you know, huge deposit franchise branches. You know, I think they've got um, 7,000 branches throughout India, you know, huge domestic footprint. Um, and, you know, India will be the largest economy one day in the world. Um, demographics are destiny. So, uh, unlike China, where demographics are deteriorating, so the the Chinese authorities are putting a lot of emphasis on robotic adoption to sort of um, fill in for the lack of humans that will eventually, you know, the lack of workers that they're going to find. I- India is the reverse. So, um, again, a, a bank, a financial institution that's well-placed to, to tap into some of those longer-term themes that I've been talking about today. Yeah. I've got one more for you if you want. Oh, we'll never say no to a stock pick, but far away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, th- I just thought speaking to you guys now, <laughs> something that might be close to your heart. Yeah, what's the world's most popular spirit? Gin. Incorrect. No, it's um, it's that oh, in, uh, in China. Uh, yes. Go to, go, uh, no, no, no. Uh, this is going to annoy me. Um, we've just done a live show on yes. the beverage industry, and I had it. It's uh, and I've lost it. Yeah, it's that. Just put us you out of our misery. Bye. Bye. Bye, Ju. Yes. So, I mean, this company, Kwa Chao Motai, it's um, not in our emerging market fund, it's in our Asian fund. Um, so, the Fidelity Asia Fund, which you can buy in the ASX, there's an M fund, something different, but, um, you know, it won't sit. It's a unit trust. But the Fidelity Asia Fund, it owns a company called Kwa Chao Motai. Um, so, it's the premium, premium Baiju. So, uh, Baiju, as I said, the world's most popular spirit. <laughs> I mean, we think it's whiskey. Oh, I thought it was whiskey. Mm. Um, was the world's most popular spirit, but we're wrong. 
Um, so this is um, a, a drink that is drunk at celebrations, whether it be you know finishing a, a, a deal or a wedding or a family celebration and you just shoot it throughout your <laughs> your dinner. Um, but you're looking at, uh, for the premium stuff, 750 US dollars a bottle. Whoa. Wow. Because um, it's produced from this, um, you know, special stream where the water is, you know, pure. Sorry, they say. So it's, well, it's, <laughs> it's like a champagne, right? A champagne region. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kwai Motai, they... Um, they dominate this region in China, um, which produces Baiju. So um, that's been a, a really standout performer in our Fidelity Asia Fund. Wow. Yeah. We should get one of those $750 bottles. Yes. <laughs> well, I went on, so I mean, I went on, uh, I went on Dan Murphy's to see if I could get any, um, which puts me back. To, you know, when I was in Shanghai, I went into the leaning store to buy a, a jumper wear it around the office as yeah. a bit of it was 200 us dollars said no way i got kids to feed so i just <laughs> left it there that's that was my leaning story but um so i went on dan murphy's to find some, some baiju but you the the um quite motai stuff um you know extremely expensive uh, i guess well it comes down to consumer preferences but um there's a local company making it up in queensland um so you can get oh, three three go. little taster bottles so yeah maybe people will send in see what they make of it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Great. Send anything in. <laughs> well, Anthony, look, we have almost come to the end of our time. We do like to end with the uh, the same final three questions. But before we do, uh, first of all, we want to say a massive thank you for joining us. Uh, secondly, we want to remind everyone that if they want uh, Anthony and the team uh, to help give them some exposure to the emerging market, the world of emerging markets, uh, the ASX ticker is FEMX. And finally, if people want to learn more about you, want to follow you online, is there anywhere they should be going? Yeah, so fidelity.com.au is the best place. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's, uh, oh, it's oh, unless you don't yeah. want to say. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Happy boy 81. No, it's, uh, no. it's uh, uh, Doyle AUD. Okay, nice. nice. Get it? Aussie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And my name's Anthony. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Um, and then LinkedIn, of course. As yeah. Well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice one. Um, well, we'll get into these final three questions. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must-reads? The, the, the best book I read last year during this pandemic um, shutdown and in terms of you know getting back to the more dour part of our conversation, debt and leverage and the rest of it, was a book by Stephanie Kelton. You must have heard it before. It's called um, it's called the Deficit Myth. Now it's pretty. It's not too intense in terms of um, you know. It's not too um, sophisticated in terms of economic jargon or anything like that. I think it's pretty commonsensical. I think it's not um, too hard to read. But basically, just talking about how how central banks can buy government debt, how they can print money how governments can fiscally expand and why it doesn't matter. We we could have you on for a whole nother episode on modern monetary theory. Uh, yeah, well, invite want. me back. Yeah, invite me back. <laughs> but we don't have time to get into it now. <laughs> no, no, no. Next time, next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's called um, The Deficit Myth. And the other book I, um, I really enjoyed was a book by a brain surgeon um, who was working on working in the NHS for, for his entire career uh, maybe 35 or 40 years. So, my, I mean, my kids were all born in London on the NHS, you know, fantastic, um, you know, public health service there. Um, so he's a brain surgeon. It just puts some perspective on life, you know, when you're 
you think, oh, maybe one of your stocks is down or, <laughs> you know, he's a guy doing brain surgeon and spine surgery and some of the stories that he has, um, you know, uh, I, th- I just think, you know, getting back to, you know, my our views on humanity and just bringing everything back into perspective um, that, uh, you know, I think that's really important thing to do. So that's called Do No Harm by Hen- Dr. Henry Marsh. Great. Two, good, two great recommendations. Uh, the next question, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? Um, our best company I've ever come across? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 60 seconds or less. Uh, there goes 20. Um, um, I, I, I'm not sure about I, mean, I know you sent me the questions before, um, but I, I guess the best company, Equity Mate Investing. Oh, great answer. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, that's a tough question. It Sorry, a, I can't answer it. Is it is a big question. I was thinking about giving a plug to my dad's company, but uh, I won't say. We, we've had Bill someone, Browder we, did that. Yeah, Bill Browder uh, gave a plug to his son's company. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, you, if anyone has any stainless steel manufacturing that they want done or um, are building a brewery, uh, my dad, he does all that. So it's called Triple Nine Stainless. They're out at Granville. So we'll He's send a, you the invoice for the plug. Yeah, well, <laughs> send, send it to him. Don't send it to me. <laughs> no, that's fine. You also could have said Fidelity. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, Fidelity, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice. Well, final question. If you uh, think back to, you know, your younger self, uh, you know, before you'd uh, left Australia for your traveling, investing yeah. in bars all around the world. Um, yeah. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self? So, yeah, I mean, I, I love this question because I sort of um, have been thinking about it a lot um, with three young kids and my oldest boy, Oscar, he started school this year. And so um, one of the things I would tell my younger self and, and my, my sons and my daughter is just have a go, have a go at life. You know, just um, don't be standing in the background. And, and, you know, you guys had a go, you know, starting this podcast and probably there's been some ups and downs. Same with with Oscar. It's like, you know, they've got the choir. I said, just go along, have a go. And he, he had a go. And then he said, uh, my heart told me I don't like it. So, but at least he had a try. And I think in looking back in my own life, I probably didn't put myself forward for enough things um, at school in particular. And then the, uh, the switch flicked at uni and I just got involved in everything. Even when I, in my career, you know, I started at Macquarie Bank uh, running faxes from the 27th floor of the building in Bond Street to the 11th floor. That was my job. <laughs> and then I got to know the Aussie equity team, fixed income team. And I parried that into when I finished my degree um, at Macquarie, at Macquarie Uni, I, I got a role as a graduate economist. Uh, and then, you know, parried that into working on a bond and currency desk in Dublin and then moving to to London at the height of, height of the GFC. So um, just having a go and, and getting involved and don't stand back and, you know, make yourself known and, and speak up, you yeah. know. that That's all really good advice, but I'm just stuck on the fact that Macquarie would have you hire someone to run fa- faxes between yep. 27 and 11. Yep. Just fax them between the floors. <laughs> <laughs> it was cheaper to do it. Hire me, trust me. Well, love it, Anthony. A great way to end the interview. There's uh, no doubt that emerging markets are an exciting opportunity for a lot of the Equity Mates community and you know, you've provided a bunch of valuable information for us today. Fascinating conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it and certainly appreciate your time and we'd love to have you back on. So, cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. 
The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.